Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to episode 106 of the Feelin' Film Podcast, where we'll be discussing John Krasinski's new horror thriller, A Quiet Place, a couple of weeks sooner than we had planned. I'm Aaron, and here with me to try and whisper our way through this conversation without attracting any sound-seeking monsters are my co-host, Patch. Hey. And special first-time guest, Patrick Willems, YouTube video creator and host of the We Heart HeartNet podcast. Hey, guys. Pleasure to be here. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. We really both enjoy your video content, and especially the recent one that has been making the rounds, kind of gone viral, if you were, about how you think fans should approach film criticism. But we're going to save a deep conversation about that topic for another day. Before we do tiptoe into the world of A Quiet Place, we do always like to catch up on anything interesting from the past week. So we'll ask you first as our guest, have you seen anything or read anything or listened to anything that you would like to recommend? Uh, yeah, actually, in this past week, other than, of course, seeing A Quiet Place so that I can uh, discuss it here with you guys tonight, uh, I've been taking some time to just try to catch up on recent movies that I, you know, hadn't seen yet. And uh, and there's some good stuff out, but I really especially dug uh, this past Wednesday, I finally saw Unsane, Ooh. Uh, the new Soderbergh film. And I'm a big Steven Soderbergh fan. And so I was, I was in for this, you know, I was going to see it regardless. I was very curious about the whole shooting on iPhones experiment. And, and so for me uh, going in, I, it was mostly just sort of a, a curiosity, like what's this new Soderbergh movie, you know, shot on iPhones going to be like? And, uh, I loved it. I, I really had a blast with it. And uh, like beyond just like the really interesting visuals and being, kind of surprised by how effective the iPhone cinematography was. I just thought it was a, a, a great, really tight, pulpy little effective thriller. And, uh, and for some reason on this Wednesday night at like this, uh, theater at, uh, Union Square in Manhattan, there was like a packed theater and the crowd was going nuts like in the last half hour and the movie totally earned it. It was, uh, it was, it was great to, similar to A Quiet Place, which we're going to talk about shortly, but just, you know, seeing an effective thriller with a good audience really reacting. And, uh, anyway, really dug the movie. And, uh, that's probably, you know, uh, yeah, that's the standout of what I've seen in the past week. It's interesting you mentioned the last 30 minutes being nuts or using that word because that is what I've heard from everyone that has seen it. I haven't, I haven't been able to see it. I actually was going to go see it this week and I went to look for times on Friday and it had dropped down to one local theater and two showtimes. It ah. was, yeah, it was very, I'm very disappointed that it is, seems to be kind of, exiting theaters as quickly as it is but that's a bummer yeah it's uh i mean i I, i'm very spoiled being in new york Uh where there's just a million theaters and so even when a movie came out like three months ago you can still catch it somewhere and yeah and and i was just uh because i didn't know this movie turned out to be more of like a more of like a i I guess uh, you know, mainstream audience pleasing movie than I anticipated. I just kind of think like, you know, when you take a movie shot on iPhones, you know, 
uh, you think like Tangerine, which great I was going to ask you to compare to that if you'd seen it. Yeah, that's yeah, the only yeah. one I've seen that I know of. Right. But Tangerine also, you know, is kind of like an art house movie. And uh, that wasn't Very like much. a wide release movie. And Unsane, you know, if you take away the unusual way it was shot, that totally could have been like a mid-budget studio thriller that came out in like the late 90s. Nice. And um but yeah, and uh it, it had a very different look than Tangerine because Tangerine had the uh the anamorphic adapter put on the iPhone lens so you've got like the big you know, the big flares and uh Sean Baker really leaned into I guess like the 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 bright hypersaturated color palette that comes mm-hmm. with you know like shooting mostly like you know in really bright sunset in in LA with iPhones and 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 that was really effective and Soderbergh went in a very different direction because his movie is mostly shot in like you know in padded cells and like dark hallways like lit with fluorescent lights because it's all in like this like mental hospital and uh but what he did what was really effective about the way I thought he used the iPhones here was that. Uh, he really embraced the, the, the wide angle look of things as well as the very deep focus. And so it gives it this unsettling view where you'll have these close ups where the whole thing is a little bit warped, but then everything is in focus. So you can see crystal clear into the background and, Ooh, nice. and, it, and it, it, it's always that way. And, uh, and I thought it, it you know, th- this could have totally been shot in a very traditional way and it could have been equally, uh, as effective, but I thought the, yeah. I thought the iPhone look worked very nicely and it made me think like, you know, I'm just going to like shoot something on, on an iPhone, like in the, the very near future, I'll get the filmic app that they use. I'll, I'll pick up some moment lenses in the next few months. I'm just like, I don't know what it'll be. I have to figure something that'll like, that'll be a good fit for, for the style, but uh, I definitely want to do like maybe like a five minute short film on an iPhone. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick, you should do that on your or patch. See, well, listeners, we're going to try to keep Patch and Patrick separate here. Patch being co-host and Patrick being guest, but I'm bound to fail at this. So just roll with us, if you will. Patch, uh, you're a short film director uh, in the film festival world. So you could do an iPhone shoot. I could. And we actually just talked about this, my, my creative team about the uh, the 48 hour film project has been announced for 2018 for for Little Rock and we were actually discussing how we would want to do this we wanted to try to uh, being inspired by a quiet place and the lack of dialogue and now uh, you talking about the iPhone that might be a nice interesting combination let's just see what would a film with very minimal dialogue being shot on an iPhone look like how would it resonate with the audience and especially done within a 48 hour uh, window. So that might be something that makes the, uh, makes the cut. We just have to figure out what the genre and everything else is going to be, but Sweet. that will happen in July. Awesome. What about you? Anything you, you want to recommend from this week? Yeah, I actually finally got a chance to finish and it's been a long time coming. It feels like, uh, reading a book called a Kim Jong Il production. It was recommended to me last, last fall, uh, from some friends of mine that, that know what a, what a film buff I am. And, I asked, what is this? Is this about North Korea? And they said, no, it's about not just North Korea, but about movies in North Korea and about propaganda. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. It sounds like it's made for a documentary. And uh, the recommendation came on the heels of talking about some of the uh, stuff going on in Korea with the Olympics coming up in South Korea and all that stuff. And so I started reading it. And the story is what I would consider a historical narrative and in, in that it's it's a true story taken from interviews with, I would call a couple of the main characters. It, it, it's the story of these two individuals 
I hope I don't butcher their names, uh, a woman named Choi Yoon Hee, uh, who's known as Madam Choi in South Korea. She's a big South Korean actress, was a big South Korean actress, really famous. And her ex-husband named Shin Sang-ok, who was a big-time director in South Korea. And back in, I guess, the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s, they were actually kidnapped from South Korea by Kim Jong-il. And they were forced to make high-quality Hollywood-esque movies for him. Now, that sounds like an insane premise and something that might actually happen in real life. But then when we know about North Korea and or what we don't know about North Korea even would kind of necessitate like, hey, that could actually be something that happened. And so it's written by a guy named Paul Fisher. And essentially what it is, it's a series of interviews and um, and all these different things that allow us to hear the story of these two individuals and how they got kidnapped and what their experience was like for the eight years that they were in North Korea. But what he does is he uses their story to kind of give us a wide lens of the history of North Korea. So if you had to give it kind of a a summary statement, like what's this book about? Well, from what I gathered and what I kind of gleaned from it was it's Fisher's way of describing the attitude of North Korea as being one of performance, of one of of influence and propaganda field. The whole he he would say the whole country, the whole history of the country from its birth all the way up to where it is now, or at least where it was by the end of the book, was all about performance, all about creating a facade of what North Korea is, was, and according to them, always will be. And so he gives you the history of the country, how it was divided, what uh, the U.S. and Russia's involvement was with that division. And then he goes into talking about these two individuals, how they were kidnapped, and why Kim Jong-il focused so much on their involvement. And the big thing that he takes away from it is that Kim Jong-il found high-quality movies and high-quality productions as being the most effective way to get across this message of North Korea's superiority. It's fascinating. I was kind of sad that I actually finished it, although I was kind of wow. happy because I took so long to just kind of uh, get through it. But there's a lot going on. Yeah. And there were things about it that just completely made my jaw drop. Like I'm going, I cannot believe that this actually happens in North Korea. And the author makes a point at the beginning and at the end to substantiate a lot of these things that he talks about. Like he, he shows, um, this is where I got this story from. This is the interview that I had. And by the end of that particular section, at the end of the book, he says, look, the fact is you may or may not believe any of this happened because a lot of it seems just crazy. But I'll leave you with this quote, and it's it's from Choi Yoon Lee or Choi Yoon Hee, who says, "If she could just if she could sum up her time in the eight years that she was in North Korea, she would say this: believe us, because it's the truth." Now, take it for what you will, but it's it's a story that I think should become a Hollywood feature, like the way in which they are captured, the way in which they make themselves kind of susceptible to Jung Il's. Uh, influence and the way in which they escape is just amazing. And so it's not only a, an entertaining read, but it's also incredibly educational. I'd recommend it to anybody who uh, loves documentaries, who loves uh, history, and who loves movies. Because what we find out is that um, that uh, Shin Sang-ok, being a big-time director, 
always wanted this. And so when they finally defected to America, he tried to make a name for himself, um, much to uh, the failure of his, his later career. He actually directed Three Ninjas, which was a, a childhood. Good movie. It's <laughs> fun movie. It's fun a fun movie. movie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're not, we're not going to put it up there with, you know, quiet place or anything, but definitely fun. And he wanted to capture some of, uh, some of the, the spirit of, of South Korea and that martial arts type of stuff. So it's yeah. really cool to, to see that and to recognize movies like, Oh, he was involved with that. Oh, he was influenced by that. That's kind of cool. And of course it made me want to actually watch some of these films. And I don't know if I can get my hands on them because most of them are Korean, but the internet's a powerful thing. And so maybe that'll happen, but hey. I highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah. They, uh, it sounds like hail Caesar two North Korea. <laughs> I've actually been meaning to read this book for like the past couple of years. I've, I, I'm like, I'm familiar with the story and I've heard the book is really good, but I think you've, you've convinced me to, to like bump it up on my list and do it much sooner. Than if I it wasn't planned. digital, Patrick, I would actually mail it to you and say, read it. I uh, just, you know, unfortunately, most of my stuff yeah. is digital now. Me too. I, you know, I'd actually seen this on other folks' read lists on Goodreads app or whatever. I'd seen people were reading this book, maybe even you, Patrick Patch. And I was like, what is, like, what are you people reading? I thought you were reading some manifesto or something from somebody in North Korea. And I was a little bit concerned that this book was going around. So I'm really glad that you brought this up and kind of explained it. I think there might be like a, uh, a documentary about there, that story? There is, and it's not good. Oh. <laughs> and I'm only taking it at face value. I, I don't know for sure, but I've, I've talked to three or four people who are big doc fans, and I've said, have you seen this? Like, yeah, don't watch it. I, I want to watch it just because I want to satisfy my own curiosity, but the book is <laughs> ten times better is what I've heard. I mean, wow, it, it almost seems like with that story, it's like it's hard to mess up. Like, uh, it's, I, I it's, it's so compelling on its own, but, uh, but I mean, like, like you said, it does sound like it would just make a good, like, traditional narrative film as well it would i think it would i think it would uh more than anything become a great biopic and one of the things that i realize is that much like things like ready player one that's kind of full of a lot of stuff it would be very difficult to put every big thing that happens in a book in a feature film I mean, maybe a maybe a tv series i think that would be kind of cool but yeah i mean i, I don't know that you could do it complete justice by making it a feature film Right. I mean, hey, you know, six-hour TV miniseries. They happen, they happen a lot more now than they used to. I'm, Netflix I'm is happy I'm, I'm to let you make it. Netflix would probably give you a couple million dollars to make it back. Uh, well, okay, I'll uh, I'll write that down along with the other things you're asking me to make <laughs> with an and iPhone. With, I'll do it with an iPhone. I'll yeah. that. And with that, I'm not going to mention the Netflix movie that I watched this week, tonight, actually, because it's not worthy of recommending. But um, the, the thing that I kind of most enjoyed this past week really was rewatching Sleeping Beauty and watching it, I think for the first time with my kids, those Disney brackets have been going around in the last week, the Disney versus Pixar brackets. And so everybody out there in film Twitter world is filling these out and trying to decide what's the ultimate Disney slash Pixar film. Well, Sleeping Beauty comes out near the top of mind. It's actually my number two because Pixar's included. So it's beat out by Toy Story for me, but Sleeping Beauty is my favorite Disney flick. And I just, I love it. And rewatching it here recently, I was able to acquire a copy of the Blu-ray disc and I will not digress into a rant about how Disney puts things in this vault because it angers me. And and I will just totally derail the podcast. With I think that. everyone's on the same page. Oh, about oh man. Yeah. 
Oh man, the the price that I had, I was not thrilled with trying to track <laughs> sucker, sucker down, right? And I, and I had to buy it eventually without the digital code that is supposed to come with it because with the digital code, it was like thirty dollars more. And so finally, I was just like, screw it. Oh my god. Um, I'll just take it. So I really wanted to own it, uh, and primarily because I wanted to watch the making of documentary. I've I've been falling in love with those, as our listeners will know, and really just kind of immersing myself in those the last few weeks. And this one is no exception to being awesome. It's really specific about how they found the animators to do this unique animation style. This still to this day is one of the most gorgeous Disney animated films you will ever see. It's very unique. I, to me, it's the best, the most beautiful one. But I think it's the Tchaikovsky score. The fact that this is based on a ballet and that the narrative kind of moves like the ballet itself that really elevates this one for me and takes that simple fairy tale story and just makes it something unique and very, very special compared to other typical Disney fairy tale stories. So I, I really enjoyed it. I was a little bummed because Sleeping Beauty 70 millimeter print is a thing. It was one of the only, I think it was the first animated film actually to be shot in 70 millimeter. And it was playing at our 70 millimeter festival last year here in Seattle. And I did not catch the screening of it. I was going to, and then I backed out that day and I'm really disappointed in myself. So hopefully it comes back uh, because it's one that I definitely want to see in its full aspect ratio. I think it'll be really, really cool to, to see an animated film that big on a screen. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, I got into this Disney fever a little bit and I went and I created a Disney's best song or a best song from a Disney animated movie bracket myself. I, uh, left off more recent movies. I just discovered this today. So there's no Moana, no Zootopia, my bad, whatever. All those Sorry. songs from Zootopia that everyone loves that everyone doesn't remember. Is it Shakira? Is she the one who sings? Oh, oh, I, I was kidding. I was like, there are no songs in Zootopia. There's one at the end. Oh, th- about there like, is, but well, that's one of the, that's like a, a, a song that exists within that world, but it's not a, yes. a, a traditional musical number. Right? And actually for the bracket, I specifically left off songs that were not sung by an animated character. So things like Circle of Life, which very well would have made a lot of people's final four, I'm sure was not included because right. that wasn't sung by an animated character, much like that Shakira song. So anyway, I made this bracket. Uh, if you follow us on our Facebook group or on our Twitter or Facebook page, anywhere I've posted links to it, you can actually find it on Bracify.com as well. Just search for best animated Disney song, I think is what it's called. I but think I saw cool. uh I definitely saw a Disney song bracket on Twitter. Was that yours? I don't I think or, I or did someone else make one. They must have, because I didn't make an actual bracket. I didn't like create the bracket version. Okay. I created a link for it. Uh, and I actually, I wish I could remember. I, I kind of crowdsourced this from a couple of different internet articles that had done best Disney song lists. And I took their lists and used my judgment to create a top 64 and make matchups that I thought were compelling. But the feedback so far has been really good. And it's, it's generated a lot of discussion and, what Patrick and I like to do is we have a Facebook discussion group and we like to drive people there to get them talking about movies all day, every day. And it's done that. And so for me, I was really pleased with that. And it was a lot of fun just having people. Somebody even made a playlist while they were going through doing the bracket. They went through and listened to every single song on YouTube and made a YouTube playlist of all 64 of them because they wanted to be faithful 
and do it the right way. And I was like, that's way nice. more than I would ever have put into this. All right. Well, that's all the stuff that we've been up to. A uh, couple quick announcements, or one, I guess, quick announcement is we just want to say thank you to our most recent patrons, uh, Dave Courtney and Stephen Keller. We appreciate your support, and we are excited to have you on the Patreon team helping us pick out those monthly donor pick episodes and <laughs> bonus content and all that good stuff. And speaking of good content... Hello everyone, this is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this <laughs> works, sir. All right, guys. Well, with that all out of the way, it's time to get into A Quiet Place. First thing, giving our quick spoiler warning up front. This is a full spoiler discussion, so if you haven't seen the film, it's like 90 minutes long. This is not something you need to plan a whole day for. Skip out of work, take an extra long lunch, go to the theater, see it. See it now. See it before somebody tells you anything about the movie, because you don't want to be spoiled. You want to experience this fresh. If you haven't seen it, turn away, go away, come back later. All right, Patch. One word takeaways. This is a horror film. It is a horror film, yeah. And it's a running thing on our podcast that Patch doesn't love horror. So yes. he likes select type of horror. And I'm always excited when I go see a movie before you, uh, which is always. <laughs> and I get to know what is in that movie. So when I see crazy, <laughs> ugly bear creatures in Annihilation, I get to think about how you're going to react to that and get excited <laughs> about hearing your stories. So <laughs> with that being said, I am pumped to hear what you thought of this movie so why don't you start us off thanks i was when i when i saw the trailers for this i don't know why but i was incredibly intrigued and i think it was the whole premise i think it was having a an actor like john krasinski and an actress like emily blunt in a film whose premise was be quiet or something's going to get you look what i know about horror films are that they are monsters and they are jump scares. And I can handle one or both of those in small doses. Uh, but when both of those come at me in large doses, I tend to be like, okay, I'm covering my eyes. Um, but for me, the intrigue of the premise and what I'd seen in the little bit from the trailers just kind of compelled me to want to go. And so we agreed to put this on the schedule. And as you mentioned earlier, we were going to delay this to get a couple other features in. And then you went to see it and you were like, go see this whenever you get the chance. Don't be spoiled. And so I'm immediately looking at my phone and going, okay, when's the first available time that I can go. That's not going to interfere with my family life or my work life. And fortunately I was able to take off early to go see it. So the one word takeaway from me was unexpected. I didn't expect to see this as soon as I was supposed to. I didn't expect to, uh, have as many jump scares as there were. I mean, any more than like maybe a half is too much for me, but whatever. But more than anything, I didn't expect it to emotionally resonate with me the way it did. Um, I was reading an article about the movie afterwards 
And there was a question asked about being surprised that John Krasinski, who's known for his comedy, can put together something so amazing uh, with all this emotional weight and drama. And the response was, well, one, did you not see Get Out and Jordan Peele? And the second response was, comedians are probably the best targets for dramas because they know what it means to have great timing. They know how to use timing. And that was something that I didn't actually think about from from that point of view. And so I was going through my mind thinking about other comedians that I like in their dramatic roles. And lo and behold, there were so many that started coming to my mind. But as I was leaving the theater, I just remember thinking, man, as much as I was like on the edge of my seat from the terror and the horror aspect of it, I was equally, if not more surprised at some of the emotional weight that this movie left me with and how, oh my gosh, I connected with this piece and that piece. And I was like, this shouldn't happen. This should not happen in horror. This might happen in sci-fi because sci-fi is the playground for things like this, to think about things beyond what you would normally think of them. And so, yeah, unexpected was probably the one word that I could really sum up about my movie experience. Awesome. I love how you bring real life into that. It's not just about the movie. It's about your experience with watching the particular movie, because Mm -hmm. I think that's something that doesn't always get taken into account. Uh, People try to evaluate a film in a vacuum, which it's, it's difficult to do that because everybody brings their own set of baggage, their own set of expectations, as we've discussed plenty of times. So Patrick, what about you? Where would you land if you had to kind of sum up your opening thoughts about this movie in one word? In one word, my one word response, I uh, would have to be satisfied. Nice. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I can't, I mean, so I had been planning on seeing this movie anyway, even before you guys, you know, were like, Hey, want to be on this episode? Cause I mean, the, the trailers immediately intrigued me. And, uh, and I, you know, I feel like I've seen the trailer for it every time I've gone to the movies for the past, like, I don't know, six months or so. So I've seen it a lot. And every time I'm just like, that's like a, an effective premise and, uh, and also an effective trailer that like gives away very little. And, uh, and I always appreciate that when, uh, you know, when a trailer has the restraint, uh, you know, to just to not <laughs> give away that much or not show many big moments. Uh, usually it makes me think like, oh, that they might actually have something good there if they're confident enough that this is all they have to show to get us in. And I, it worked if you looked at, you know, it's like how well it did uh, at the box office this past weekend. But then I, when it screened at South by Southwest and the reviews were so good, I was like, okay, perfect. You know, it's uh, a horror movie that already looks cool, is being this well received. I am totally in. And, uh, and you know, in, in terms of like studio horror movies, uh, it's not very often that we get like ones that are like, like that are genuinely good, maybe a couple a year. And yeah. And just like, you know, watching this, it, it, it gave me exactly what I hoped it would. Um, it, uh, I thought it was really, it was really effectively made. It, 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 I felt like it gave the audience more credit than I expected it to. There were, there were so many, I mean, Basically, this movie had so many could, could have made so many choices that I, I almost expected it to that I wouldn't have liked, and and it and it avoided those uh, those choices so often, which was which was just satisfying. It just uh, the the scares worked. The uh, I guess the sort of what 
they had of the the mythology or like uh, like uh, the, the rules of this world that worked the family drama at the heart of it worked which is getting you to care about the characters who whose lives are at risk is so so key to making a successful horror movie and they really succeeded there and uh and yeah and i just you know and it was a tight 90 minutes which is so nice and i don't think i, I was mentioning unsafe I know. I mentioned Unsane earlier. Also, a ninety-minute movie, and it's it's so nice to to leave a theater and just be like, man, they they didn't they didn't waste any time. They just uh they they you know they knew what they wanted to do. They came in, did it really effectively, got out, and I uh, and uh you know it was uh and I hadn't really read reviews ahead of time, so I didn't have anything spoiled for me. But it was what I hoped it would be. I, I that might sound not sound like the most like uh i guess or like the, the most thrilling rea- or like the, the, the biggest reaction but um especially for a movie that you know is like setting out to get a big audience reaction but uh but yeah i, I had a good time and i was like I just thought it was a very well put together movie i had a good time and i was very satisfied awesome that's a good good thing a good word i think that we probably all would say we felt that way too wouldn't we? I don't know. I would. Patrick, would you? Patrick, Patch, Patrick, Patrick? Oh gosh. Oh, I don't even know if I'm going to try anymore. Um, at the, at all the right. Very, at the very least, I would support the fact that 90 minutes is a, is a great running time. Uh, it should be known that Get Out was, uh, an hour and 45 minutes. So yet another effective movie that was under two hours, which is nice. It is. So my word that I would go with is terror and I felt this on so many different levels and that's kind of why I resonate with that so much is I went in not knowing fully what to expect because obviously, like you said, that teaser trailer gave us nothing at all to go off of, but we're dropped right into this world and we don't get to know anything. We just see people scrounging around. It's really, really quick to do that. And and that first scene comes, you know, about five minutes in, when his son gets whisked away and I, I just, my jaw dropped and I was like, okay, so that's what I'm in for. So that's what, that's what this is going to be like. Okay. I was not ready for that necessarily. And I felt that terror. I felt it build throughout the whole film. And Patrick, something you said is very important to me as well. And that is that, that emotional character development with such a small cast. I mean, this is a movie that is, Acted by four people. Now they're all stellar actors. It's you know John Krasinski. Um, excuse me, uh, f- five. There is the old man who screams well, I, at one point. I'm not counting him or the first son. I, I, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you know we have those two, and then we have Millicent Simmons, and we have uh, from Wonderstruck, who's phenomenal, and then we have Noah Jupe, who is probably the only good thing in Suburbicon, actually. So, um, you know, these, these kids are really great actors as well, but everybody had to play their parts perfectly for this to work, for you to pull this off, for it to be that tight and to work. And they, they do it. They keep it intense and suspenseful from the moment that you start living in this world that you're dropped into it until the very, very end. It never lets up. And it's that family drama at the center of it that pushes it over the top for me i i was trying to tell people what it was on twitter everybody wants like nobody wants to read my review 
everybody just wants me to tell them in like one, you know, 280 characters what the movie is. Which yes, is isn't, isn't film criticism really just about saying whether something is good or bad and there's no room for nuance? I could just be like five stars and I don't have to tell you why. Yeah, it's it's a little annoying. But that being said, I came up with a way to tell people what this was. And I kept saying, you know, think of it as a family centered, emotionally driven version of alien in a post-apocalyptic world. And, and then people were like, Oh, okay. Then yes, I'll go see it. And, and what I love always is people coming back after they go see the movie and they're like, Oh yeah, that's a perfect description. So then I felt good about it, but that is what connected for me is not seeing the monster on the screen a ton of time. But when I did see it, I was scared to death and I was always terrified that it was lurking right around the corner. And I feel like that's what real true creature features do when they are at the top of their game. And then there's still some traditional horror in this too. There's that nail scene, which I will never, ever get out of my mind ever. I love ever. it. I, lo- I love it. I don't love it. It was very bad. And I was like, I, I was covering my eyes waiting for her to like step on it. And then, and then the daughter Regan coming down when you, you know, yep. oh, ex- oh, yeah. I guess that's probably one of the moments you're talking about where you expect her to then step on it. Yeah. Oh, and I'm not sure, like, my heart for, I wasn't so much expecting that to happen there, but I liked the fact that the nail was still in play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there, there was a, <laughs> I remember when they're coming back down the stairs, a guy sitting behind me, uh, <laughs> just hear him like mutter out loud and I'll, I'll censor this because this is not an, uh, you know, a parental advisory podcast. He goes, uh, you know, they better not effing step on that nail. And he just like, he was like, just like, like, uh, almost like without, I feel like he didn't even know he was saying it. He was just like, just thinking about that nail, just like, yeah. and, uh, because you know, it's there at the same time, there, there was, would have been no logical place for them to like, her to go back down and be like, maybe I should just like, uh, pry this nail out just for, for safety, but you know, it's there. And it's just this other little thing nagging at you. And again, you know, I, I I'm coming at this very much at the sort of like, the almost like, you know, robotic, like, you know, filmmaker like perspective where I'm like, like effective filmmaking. That's a good choice. I like that, you know, like the goal is to create suspense, having the nails still in play creates more suspense. Good job, John Krasinski and the writers. That's, that's nice filmmaking. But, uh, but then, hey, you know, and if, so I'm, I'm coming, I'm sitting there at that, that, that's point, just like kind of like nodding and smiling to myself, being like, yes, this is effective. I like it. It is. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, terrifying. Well, you, you, you have the more visceral experience, which I feel like I should be having. Oh, so, okay. Well, let's go ahead then. And the first thing I kind of want to talk about, I guess, is just, I hate to say, you used the word mythology earlier and I liked that. Um, I was going to say, that seems like, like not the right word. Well, I was going to say the gimmick, which is a little unfair, but in a sense, some people think of this as a gimmick. It's a movie that's built around one specific function of of how it's told the story is told and that is you can't speak right this is like a no doubt song perfect video for it patrick why are you shaking your head at me pat <laughs> um you love it but so this is a movie with a without dialogue for like the first 40 minutes i don't know if you guys were tracking it i was very curious myself and i was thinking about that as it was going on and um uh, so sorry to, to cut you off but i just remember like being one of the the things that pleasantly surprised me about this was when they started using sign language, and mm-hmm. I was just like, "Oh, whoa! They're 
they're actually they really thought this through and uh they're actually communicating via sign language which is like the most sensible thing to do and also the you know and like, again like i i love the way this was put together but having a deaf daughter means that the family would know sign language and that gives them an advantage over everyone else in this world and so that is of course so crucial to why they survived as long as they did and um and i just thought that was such a a smart choice and uh like they really thought through the uh the premise and the core concept more thoroughly than i would have expected and uh but yeah back to what you're saying 40 minutes in is when the first line of dialogue is spoken well, that's what I was getting at, actually, is that they did have this deaf actress even come in. And it was it was something Krasinski really wanted was someone that could do this naturally and not fake it. And so Millicent Simmons taught them sign language on set. So, I mean, you really are building a family dynamic there that carries over to the filming side and makes it so much more realistic feeling. Well, and not just realistic, but if you notice, sign language is a, at least in, in the confines of this film, it's a very calm language. Like anytime you see them signing to each other, it feels very peaceful. It feels very not abrupt, not excited. And to me, I think that informed the way in which they were able to keep each other together, keep each other at bay, no pun intended producer or whatever. But I think what you have is this really interesting, not only purposeful language, but also from an audience point of view, a way to articulate a sense of we have to keep calm. I mean, how many times did we see one of the characters slowly put their hand up to their up to their mouth with the the shh sign? They didn't do it really quickly. They did it very slowly. And for me, that worked because it articulated that we can't freak out. I mean, there's craziness happening all around us, but in each moment when either an attack happened or prior to that, or just in transition scenes, everything was done at a very slow, methodical pace. And I felt like that was intentional. And that was a way to articulate not only to the family, but also to us that look, we cannot lose it. We cannot go crazy in here because that's not what's going to get the job done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and that does inform, I think, why they are some of the only survivors we get to see is because they kind of have that leg up uh, on the rest of the world who probably had no prior understanding of what it's like to to live with someone in their house that doesn't speak. And so it's, it comes more or comes easier to them to transition what about the monsters themselves? Uh, this is part of the gimmick, the world building, I guess we could call it, is this idea you have this monster and Krasinski's character, Lee is his name, I believe, has something written down where he's trying to make you know, little notes about what the monster's statistics are like. And I keep thinking of it as a, as a D&D character because it reminds me of like the Demogorgon. Um, but it's is it's blind. It attacks sound and it's armored, heavily armored. Those are the three cat characteristics that he noted of it. Mm-hmm. Does that work for you in a realistic sci-fi way? Like good sci-fi to me, good, good movies like this are ones where the, I'll say the best ones for me are ones where I feel almost like this is 
close enough to where it's realistic and I could exist that I get more scared. Do you guys feel that way about this one? Did it feel out of place at all? Yeah, no. Uh, what I meant when I used the word mythology earlier, this is part of what I was referring to just in terms of like, you know, the history of the, the situation this movie takes place in as in, you know, clearly these, you know, if, if you're going to call them aliens, just like us, I guess we assume they're aliens. So I, I, apparently I was one of the only people that noted this uh, on Twitter. I was finding people complaining about where they came from. And I, I read one of the newspaper articles in the background because I was really focusing in on them. And it said meteors hit earth, cause incredible chaos. Okay. And these things appeared. So I'm, my, I'm believing they came from outer space. Yeah. I was, I, I, I assumed that they were aliens. I was trying to look, I was also trying to look at the newspapers, but I did not see that one. And, uh, but yeah, so let's just call them aliens. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, the, the mythology referring to these things and the history of like, like, uh, how they work and how they got here and stuff like that. And one of the things I really appreciated about this movie is that they spent zero time explaining any of that. Like you didn't need to, like, why would these people, you know, a uh, like more than a year into this scenario be talking about like how these creatures got here and like like there'd be no reason for them to talk about it because they they know it and it's in the past anyway and so the movie it it didn't bother explaining that stuff to us because there was no it, it, that wouldn't add anything to it and and I and just having them be these these things that there was no way to really get information about them other than these really brief sightings. Uh, I thought that was really effective. Like, and yeah, I, I totally believed that, that this guy would, you know, be spending all his free time, you know, like writing down notes and like trying to learn as much as he can, because, you know, what are the options in that scenario? All they're doing is hanging out there. So he might as well, you know, try to a, find you know some way to uh make a hearing aid for his daughter and b you know figure out like uh the best way to at, at least protect against these things if not actually fight back against them yeah i i think one of the most refreshing things about this movie um is that it reminded me a lot of the premise of the walking dead or the lack thereof because the walking dead and a quiet place both do something similar. They drop you into a world and they don't explain to you what's happened because that's not the point. The point is not to know as much as you can about these aliens. The point is to focus on the people that are being affected by what's happened. And that's part of what makes this 90 minutes so so great is the fact that we're not bogged down with backstory because that takes away from the real purpose of what Krasinski and his creative team are trying to do, which is focus on this family dynamic. And Aaron, you mentioned picking up little things in the background. And I think those things would not have been picked up had we had dialogue. And I think that's another thing that there, the movie allows us to heighten our other senses. It really makes us want to look around and see what's going on. So that first sequence inside the store I didn't have to worry about who was saying what because, one, they weren't saying anything. I was looking for clues as to what has happened. Patrick, you mentioned earlier that you appreciated the fact that it didn't make its – I'm going to 
paraphrase what you said, but it didn't make your audience feel stupid. Like it trusted the audience to pick up on things. And that's probably one of the greatest things about going into a movie is when the movie trusts its audience to take things away and even leave it open to interpretation. That opening scene was a playground for us to figure out what had happened without saying anything. And from a script writing standpoint, it makes it probably a little bit easier because you're really just focusing on, okay, we're going to set the scene up here. We're going to put this here. We're going to put this here. So-and-so is going to walk around and you don't have to bog it down with unnecessary dialogue. And when you have creatures that come in, you're less inclined to wonder, Hey, what's going on? Because your discovery of them immediately, like in that opening scene where the little boy gets uh, basically taken away, eating, whatever. Yeah. Eaten. Killed is is your intrigue is now increased along with your fear, which you have those two emotions, and now you're like, okay, what's going to happen? Where is the next creature going to come from? Combined with, what do they want? What are they doing? And so you just got all of this emotional investment, fifteen minutes into the movie, and now you've got another what seventy five to resolve all this. I mean, that's that's a lot of time to get to kind of exhale what you're about to experience. Yeah, it, it really is. And, I, you know, I've most people I've heard from have had no problems with this. I've heard some criticisms. I've heard people talk about why would you not know what's going on with these you know, monsters and why aren't you seeking help elsewhere? But I feel like the world does a fantastic job of really answering all those questions. They're isolated. The scene that reminds me of the Lord of the Rings and the lighting of the beacons of Gondor, uh, you know, where they're lighting these furnace fires atop of these these towers, these silos, so that they can let other survivors know who's still alive. I thought that was brilliant. It is so, so just a subtle way of ex- of explaining what the community is like in this area of tiny little pockets of people that are still out there trying to survive on their own. But there is no communication. There's no radio. There's no TV. There's no media because anything that makes sound, anything that tries to convey information to somebody else is going to end up bringing on the wrath of the monsters. So it, it all works perfectly for me. And where, and I've heard people say, well, where would they, why don't they leave the area? Well, where, where exactly are you, for what I believe is again from the newspapers, it talks about how the military was not effective. So I have to believe this is just a snapshot of what it's like everywhere. I think it's pretty clear also why they don't leave I mean, because I, I, in the opening scene, which obviously is set about a year before the rest of the movie, they do go into town to like get supplies. And then clearly after what happens, they don't do that anymore yes. because like go- going places is a whole, <laughs> I feel like, you know, with like entering unknown territories that's gonna you know lead to situations probably that create sound and the safest thing to do is stay in a place that you know where you can control everything and uh and just yeah just stick around there and not not risk it and because and that's that just like uh leads back to uh, something that I, I appreciated so much of this movie just that they like the the uh Krasinski and and the writers really thought through like what would be the best way to survive in this world and like if these people have have made it this like much longer than most other people what 
are the steps that they would take in terms of like how would their lives go? What would their routines be like? What would their, you know, safety precautions be like uh, in order to, to function? And they really they thought it through in terms of, you know, uh, the system for fishing, uh, you know, like uh, using, you know, like like a growing corn, the, the, the beacons that you mentioned, all of these little things uh, just they they felt really believable to me. Because uh, it's like, yeah, th- those are like the precautions you'd need to take to survive. And they also made me uh, respect those characters more because it's like, oh, they're smart. They've like, you know, they have really like done everything they could do to handle the situation and deal with it and prepare for like anything. That, I mean, like right down to the just having the red light bulbs with the, the warning the, lights are awesome. Yeah, the, 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 the switch that they could just flip to immediately let. Uh, each other know like some like something bad is happening like mm-hmm. and uh to like having moved into like the basement of of the barn to like the way they they planned uh for for the baby that was going to come honestly maybe you know maybe the the uh the, the toughest thing to accept is just that they did uh you know uh have that they did have a baby which seems like the worst idea in that world so so let's talk about it. this is off topic a bit before we get there but we're we'll come back to survival stuff a little bit more but i want to i'm so glad you brought that up because it's the number one criticism of this movie that i have seen is that was a stupid character action and it was too important to the plot and it totally derailed my enjoyment of the film because they're stupid. Why would they do such a dumb thing as have a baby and bring it into this world? And I think it's a very simple answer is that when you have experienced the loss that they just experienced with their son, their healing is related to bringing this new child in to replace him in a, in a sense. And I think It even goes further than that, at least for me. What I pulled out of it was this idea that if this is a world that we're going to ever be able to continue living in post-monster, if we're ever going to solve this problem, get rid of them, it has to be – we have to be willing to continue to procreate. Like we have to be willing and we still want to bring more life into the world because if we're not able to do that or we don't want to do that, then ultimately we eventually just all die out. Right, and I think that's what makes it less of a survival movie and more of a progressive living. Like, we're, we're not going to just survive. We're going to live. And I think making the choice to have a child, even with all of the precautions that they had to take, which, by the way, I'm I'm the idiot of the theater. I'm like, oh, my gosh, are they going to suffocate the child because they accidentally got pregnant? Is that what's going to happen? Is that why they're doing that that whole oxygen? What, what's happening there? Finally made sense when it actually happened. Great, whatever. But... <laughs> I, 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 I'm initially thought and had that same kind of criticism. Like, why are you doing that? But it's articulating the fact that this family, this patriarch is not going to let the circumstances dictate how he is going to live and how his family is going to live. They are trying to make a life while trying to solve a problem, albeit it's a huge problem and trying to, <laughs> yeah, and trying to take out, cause his is always, his motive is always to destroy the, yeah. the alien creature. It's never about just maintaining a life there. They're, he's trying to figure out the best way, any way to try to stop them. So his character, 
And I think as an extension, the family's characters uh, traits are essentially, we are going to overcome this. We're going to hope in the fact that this will be over someday. And by having this baby, I think it's almost symbolic along with a reaction to this, this grieving and how to move forward with the loss of a child that makes having this new child that much more important. And it feels less weird after thinking through it that way. Oh yeah. I, I, I'm totally with you. And, uh, and just to make it clear, uh, I don't have a problem with, uh, the, you know, the, the pregnancy slash baby element. And, um, as like, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, I think I, I think it's effective and was like the right choice to make. And uh, I I really was just thinking that you know in terms of like for those characters like th- they they brought a, a a really difficult situation upon yes. themselves. And yes, I'm, I'm just thinking that sucks. Like I like this is hard enough as it is. I uh just it, it this is gonna make everything way worse but um but yeah but i I, again i thought like you know the the motivations behind it you know are you know totally totally work and and didn't need to be stated by the characters and also just i think it made for a better movie just you know like that entire set piece with her having to you know oh yeah give birth in that scenario with the nail and like every everything in in that sequence that was i mean that was the high point of the movie in my opinion yeah, I think that it is important for making them a unique characters as well. It, I, you know, anybody could relate to, well, I'm not going to have a baby. That's insane. I've got to think about myself. I've got to think about my family that exists now, that's alive now. And only, like Patrick said, that are survival versus thinking long term. I think that's what we expect. And so it subverts our expectations a bit when they so willingly have a baby and, and seemingly on purpose. Right. And yeah. when you have when you have a death of a character so early on within those first 15 minutes that gives you two things to think about one anybody could go down <laughs> at this point when you have the rest of the movie to to kind of play that out and then when you see a pregnant Emily Blunt you're going oh okay so family is going to be the centerpiece of this movie it's not going to be about aliens attacking and how do we defeat them or just that but that's going to take a back seat and so we get more of that emphasis on the importance of family from that scene where the, the young child is killed. And then we see the uh, scene a couple of minutes later where we see Emily Blunt's character being pregnant. Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, like thematically this move, everything in this movie comes back to the fears of being a parent. And that's like, like all, you know, these monsters in the whole scenario, it, it, it's really just like, it's a way to explore that. And so, and all, and, and, and just because it heightens all of those things. And so, you know, it, it's about like wanting to keep your children safe and at the same time, like, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, like, you know, like raising a, a, a kid with a disability, you know, uh, having a kid who, who, who blames themselves for, uh, for something bad that happens, uh, you know, just, and especially, you know, dealing with the fear of bringing a child into the world and, and the dangers that, 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 that child will have to face and then the difficulties that, that will, that will bring upon, you know, like you, uh, you and your family and, you know, that, that, that to me is like, it's just really what the movie is about more than anything else. And, 
having, you know, putting it at all in this terrifying scenario, it just heightens all of that so much. Like, I mean, you could basically make the same movie with no monsters and it would just, it would just be a stressful drama. Well, about, about a family just like trying to get by yeah no you really could like a wilderness type survival tale i, I mean even like honestly you could take away all the horror elements and um it's just like you know this this family they've got a they have a a deaf daughter and uh one of their kids dies at the beginning and uh then they've got another kid on the way and and those same the same tensions uh between members of the family like all the conflicts that are there all the stresses they still exist even if there's no monsters and yeah. there's nothing strange about the world. There's nothing. I agree, but I think the agency of those stressors would need to be something equally as interesting. And that's, oh, where, yeah. that's where not, I think the, that's where I think the monsters themselves, it has to be something, but you're right. Right. The emphasis is on the drama itself. But I think what Krasinski and company are doing here is they're saying, if we're going to create drama, let's do it in an interesting way. Let's put them against aliens from another planet and have some interesting uh, give them some interesting power so that it limits one of our most valuable uh, senses, which is hearing and or speak or whatever, because that's crippling. I mean, that is one of the, one of the things I remember thinking was maybe my one word takeaway needs to be handicap because of the fact that you have a deaf character actress, but also these guys aren't really, yes, they're choosing not to speak or not to speak loudly. They're choosing to live uh life barefoot walking on sand but they have to in order to survive they're giving up this thing that is so vital to them like when emily blunt's character when she steps on that nail i wanted to scream in the theater because the way she was holding that in i mean have you guys ever tried to you yeah, stub I, your toe yeah or, or you're, you're like holding your fist I mean, we all felt that way. We've oh, all yeah. ha experienced something yeah. like that and how hard it is to hold that in. And then, of course, the pregnancy scene when <laughs> those fireworks go off and I'm like, yes, scream, have that baby. Because you know that she's just holding this in and how difficult that is. And so I think having such a quirky, weird, whatever you want to call it, uh, antagonist that forces you into that. I don't know that it would be as interesting. It would still have those dramatic elements, but I don't think it would be nearly as interesting oh, or entertaining. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. And just, just to be clear, I'm not saying, yeah, this movie should just be a drama with no monsters. I, I like, like, um, then it would be, I, it comes at night. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 in my opinion, less effective version of this movie, but I, but yeah, I, I, what I was just getting at is that I think part of what makes this movie work so well is that if you did take the horror elements away, there's still a movie there, right? Because it's how yeah. strong it is, yeah. No, yeah. I totally agree. Because it's like you know, this is this is a really common, uh, like you know, idea, but just that you know, horror is such an effective genre for you know discussing you know issues, whether it's like Carrie being, uh, you know. A story about, uh, a teen girl, like, you know, like a teen girl sort of like terrifying sexual awakening and puberty and all of that. Like, you know, like Rosemary's Baby, another, like a movie about like the fears of moving to, to a new city and, uh, and, you know, bringing a child into the world. And this is basically a, a horror movie just about how frightening parenting is. Well, it's interesting that you said that because it's actually John Krasinski has called it himself a love letter to parenting. Oh, and that it is an exploration of what you would go through to protect your children. Like that was his driving thought 
when he was writing this. And I think it plays out very much so that way. And I'll obviously talk a little more about that in, our, in the connecting point section. Um, at least I, my mine and I know patches connecting points will have something to do with that, but you know, he essentially is parenting beyond the grave through his creation in this film, through his device that he has made. Yeah. He is still protecting his children, even though he's gone because he uh, dies because he spent so much time, you know, working on this device, this, this hearing aid slash, I, I guess he didn't know it was going to be a weapon probably. Uh, but in essence, that's what it became. And I love all the relationships here. Um, I think that is also what elevated this into just the stratosphere for me personally, is that it's not one primary relationship that matters. And then everybody else is just kind of revolving in a circle around that one relationship. You have all of them kind of fleshed out with their own little subplots going on. You have a husband and wife. There's this wonderful moment, wonderful moment, almost my connecting point where they share that slow dance to a Neil Young song, Harvest Moon. And it's like she's using the lyrics to communicate. Um, it, it's, oh my gosh, that, that scene was just so powerful to me. The way that it was filmed, the way that it worked in that time, because we hadn't had them being able to speak to each other yet. And it was very clear that that was their method of having romantic intimacy together. But you have their relationship and how they kind of, coordinate and live in this world. And then you have a father and son. You have a very specific relationship between Lee and his son and how teaching him how to be responsible for getting food and how to search. And you have a, a, a boy who is very scared and doesn't want to take on responsibility. And then on the other side, you have a girl who does want to take on this responsibility, but feels that she's being discriminated against essentially because She's a, a woman or a young, a young lady when Krasinski keeps telling her, Hey, listen, I have a plan. I have a plan. Like I have something for you. What's important is you taking care of your mother. That's a job. And that is equally as important. And it's important that you do this and your brother's going to do this because everything's going to work together. And she doesn't understand that. Um, but he has that bigger plan. Our friend Don Shanahan. Uh, who is also a co-host on Connecting with Classics podcast episodes with us, his his movie lessons that he does, every movie has a lesson. His number one was, kids, listen to your parents. And I was like, that's the best like movie lesson you've ever come up with because that is so true. If they just listen, you know, they will survive because he as a father has put these things in motion. And so he has this relationship with her and then they have that barrier based on what happened to the the son. You know, she feels guilt and shame. She thinks it's her responsibility. She assumes that she's not loved. He's trying to get across to her that it's okay, but that, that's just hanging over all of them. And then you have the daughter and the son that even have some relationship building scenes together with them in the silo where they're arguing about whether or not the, the dad loves her. You know, the son's like saying, yes, he does, you know, and the first one of the first things he says, the son says when he's able to speak out loud under the waterfall is he asks his dad, do you love Regan? Like, because he wants to know so he can, you know, make her feel secure. And so I just really love all of the relationship work in this film. I think it's masterfully done to integrate all of them 
with each other. I, I look at the relationships there and I wholeheartedly agree with you, Aaron. I think that there's equal, not just equal screen time, but equal value given to each one of these. I like the fact that we have that conflict, not only with the father daughter relationship and what his motive is to keep her from something, but rather keep her doing something else. Like he sees value in what she's doing and protecting her mom and how we, we get to see both sides of that. And that's one thing I like about being an audience is we're somewhat uh, omniscient because we can see what she's interpreting from him and we can see what he's interpreting from her. And when it all comes together, when we see that sort of resolve in the different ways that it does, it's such a nice payoff because we're getting a chance to experience their emotional strain and why they're experiencing that. Like, I've never felt unloved by my parents, but I've definitely felt that I've disappointed them and that they have a grievance against me for something, some, some reason or another. And there might be real truth to that, but... I do remember times when I'm, I feel like I'm in the quote doghouse with my mom or my dad because I've done something wrong because I've lost their trust. And it's so refreshing. It was always so refreshing to hear them say, look, nothing that you've done has caused me to love you any less. We just have to earn trust back. And there's a sense of hope behind that. And when we get that introduction early on, we get that the death of that child and we get her grieving and we get his trying to keep the family together. It builds that tension that I think makes the movie work so effectively because then we get to the end and we can actually exhale a little bit emotionally with both him and her. And we feel like, at least in my opinion, I think that their, their, their character conclusions were a very nice payoff. Uh, yes, I, I, I totally agree with that. And, uh, and, so one quick question for you guys is um uh so the point early on when I'm blanking on character names but when John Krasinski doesn't want his daughter to go down into the basement is that just because he doesn't want her to see his sort of like setup for uh you know trying to build an, a hearing aid for her I interpreted that as being a little bit like th that, um, I think it was, I, I interpreted it as his way of gaining a bit of strength from his family. So if she walked down and she saw all this stuff, I think that she would, that scene essentially uh, informs us that he's been doing, he's been trying this over and over and over again. And I think that she, he wants to hide that piece of his life from his family because I think that's his most vulnerable point place where he's not only trying to solve this problem but he's also trying to solve the problem of how do we get rid of the monsters like I don't think he wants his family to see his weakness that was my interpretation of that 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 basement is his place of this is where I can go to fail because no place else in the movie do we see him failing at anything we see him protecting we see him hunting we see him doing all these things to make sure his family's taken care of and I think the basement is a place of vulnerability for him because it's a place of discovery, a place of failure, a place of trying to figure out what's going on because he doesn't want that burden to be on any of his family. That's his burden to carry. I'm that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I hadn't even thought about it until now, uh, honestly. So that's that's fantastic. I think that 
nails it personally. And that works really well. Um, so the cinematography in this movie, I really stands out to me. And the cinematographer is someone that I was not really familiar with much up until now. Um, her name is Charlotte Bruce Christensen. I believe she's been doing a lot. She's like pretty new, but she's been doing a lot of work recently. Yeah. She did something else very recently. She shot Molly's game. Molly's game. That's what it was. Yeah. So something that not necessarily that you would think of as cinematography or looking for the cinematography in that type of picture, but here everything is just perfect. I I love that the way that, that the monster scenes in particular are shot. I think the, claustrophobia of them is wonderful and i loved the homages to alien and that's why i used it when i kind of reference what i think this movie is like for me i've thought about it now i made this proclamation after i saw the movie it's been about a week so i feel like i can say it safely and mean it, it this is the coolest designed monster outside of alien and predator since then to me I love wow. the look. I love the look, the sound, the way so, that it, so in thirty years, yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, From, and, and, and and maybe I may have some blind spots in my my watching of movies. I will admit, uh, there's probably have, something out there. Have, have you seen Attack the Block? Oh, that's on the list. That's high okay. on the list. Though, in fact, I had a friend that just watched that recently, and I was like, those creatures are freaking because they glow. Like, come on, right? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, those are really cool. But. I love the way that this does it. There's a scene when she's hiding underneath the makeshift waterfall in the basement and she backs underneath the water to muffle her sound. And that, you know, creature comes up and it's, it's almost just like that scene, classic scene with the alien and Sigourney Weaver's face. It's really reminiscent of that. And I think there are multiple kind of moments that make you, think of that claustrophobia that you felt when you're watching alien the way that this movie is shot and filmed in the basement scene in particular i think it's it's wonderful and she just does an awesome job with the whole thing yeah i think the creature design is pretty fantastic and it's one of those things where just like the scenery we are informed less by words and more by seeing and and hearing and there are those two or three moments when the camera zooms into, I guess, would be the audio area of the creature, and we see the vibration, and we 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 see and hear what it's what it's focusing on, and it just completely works. I I was I was watching the interview that Krasinski gave with uh, was it Collider, I guess, and he was talking about the redesign of the creature in Deep into Post. And one of the things he said without spoiling the movie was he said, we wanted to redesign the creature so that there was more focus on this one particular character trait. And I've got to, I've got to believe it's that it's focusing on how it interprets, not interpret sound, but how it actually like hones in on sounds and goes after it and how that informs Krasinski's character and their family about what the creature's strengths and weaknesses are. But it's just a scary thing to look at. Like you don't want to be anywhere near that thing because of how fast it, it moves like a velociraptor. And then it looks like you mentioned Aaron, like this alien creature and you just don't want to be anywhere near it. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm not quite 
as I like, I generally like the creature design. I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm quite as super positive on it as you guys are. T- t- to me, it's like, well, I thought it was an effective design and I did, I really dug the way the, I guess the armor pieces on its head. Like the blood opens the, up. Yeah, I thought that was a really unique design. In general, like in terms of the sort of the silhouette of it, um, I, I thought it very much fell within, I guess, the sort of uh, the realm of like the, you know, uh, like like monsters from the past decade, as like uh, as in like the Cloverfield monster, or uh, I'm blanking on, on a, a couple more um, like uh, recent ones, but the sort of like... Not that memorable. I know, but, uh, but in terms of the, like, you know, you know, like the, like the, the very long angular, uh, like, like sort of like front legs. Bipedal. Yeah. The, yeah. Like that, that sort of thing. And, um, and it, it, but, the, but I, I think about this every, like every so often, just in terms of like, you know, how, you know, how many new kinds of designs, like, like, are, are, can there be almost right. like, you know, the alien, like the, like, you know, like the, uh, the HR Giger alien is so distinct. And, uh, like, there's nothing else really like that. And I feel like a lot of the, the, the stuff that's come up in the past decade or so does, you know, are, are also like, uh, the thing from, from Super 8, which is also just seem, kind of seems like an offshoot of the Cloverfield thing. And I feel like, like this, while being a bit more interesting than those, does kind of fall into the same realm as those and uh, i i i thought it was a a solid creature design and um and i i'm actually a little torn on the point on the points where the camera would move in uh, on the uh it's sort of like i guess it's it's ear or it's hearing mechanism mm-hmm. because i do think those those moments are they're they're fairly essential for you know in terms of establishing you know like how, like what it's doing, it's, it, it's hearing and how it's hearing works. And it's like, it's you know, extremely amplified, you know, sonic, like I, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, receptors, but, uh, but at the same time, those, those moments, uh, visually are very different from the rest of the movie. They're these sort of almost like impossible CG camera move, like zooms in, uh, like, like into its anatomy that because the rest of the movie it's so tactile and uh to the point where like and one thing that i i you know was going to mention inevitably i love that this was shot on film there are so i mean we don't get enough movie shot on film these days especially horror movies shot on film they're almost all digital you know like i mean we had it last year shot on film uh which i appreciated but other than that they're pretty much all like you know like they're all inexpensive and they're all digital and this just like a, a nice like those rich grainy blacks that come like with like like nighttime scene shot on film i loved that and i love the look and feel of the movie and so those so those moments when it would like zoom in on its you know like uh, yeah on its audio receptors like uh receiving sound and like the frequency of them because it was this you know, this CG impossible camera movement kind of thing. While I thought what it was accomplishing was effective, I became a little less frightened at those because it's like, you know, there's the subconscious, I know this isn't real, the thing that I'm looking at. And that was just my personal 
reaction to it. So like I get why they did it. I've been trying to think of like, is there a more effective way to accomplish the same thing? And I haven't quite settled on an answer yet. Well, I think less is more would probably be equally as effective because the whole movie builds on that less is more stuff, less dialogue, more, more actions. I, I think the thing for me is there was a lot of emphasis on the eyes. Uh, the eye, the eyes of the actors were very much where most of the drama happened, at least for me, because we see Krasinski, how he looks at his kids, how he looks at his wife and how they look back at him. And when you, when you take that, I agree. I think that we probably didn't need to see those close up shots of the aliens because we knew from background information, literally that they focused on sound. So we didn't necessarily need to see it. So I thought it was more like eye candy than anything else. It wasn't enough to make me feel like, Oh, that's crazy. You know, whatever. Uh, or pull me out of the movie. But I definitely think a less is more approach probably would have kept the effect a little bit more tactile, as you mentioned. It, it is a tricky thing because obviously with the end of the movie when, you know, the sort of like the frequency and uh, of the sound and it's, uh, you know, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how much we can. Can I just jump in and talk about the ending, like the climactic scene? Oh, yeah, that's next, because that's the last thing we're going to talk about before connecting point. So you're OK, perfectly. go for yeah. it. So, uh, you know, at at, at the end uh the the hearing aid that 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 the dad had made for his daughter it turns out that that it happens to like vi- like work at exactly the right frequency that you know that bothers these creatures and mm-hmm. so when they get close to the daughter like you know she feels it in her 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 hearing aid like in her head and so it hurts her and then they they react like strongly like in a negative way and they they flee and get out of there and then you know she finally realizes this in the basement when they're trapped down there with it and and uses that you know the the frequency of that hearing aid to you know like kill them and uh and which you know which is a pretty key thing because they finally you know discover a way to to fight back a way to stop them and so those moments when you know when the the camera moves in and you see the uh the little the thing inside its head like you know receiving sound and vibrating those those are essentially like setting up this moment that'll pay off later on when uh when she uses you know when like like the, the frequency and the sound becomes really key and so so yeah so the thing is like really you know, it's a matter of making that moment land at the climax where you see how it's affecting them. And that's where I wonder, like, you know, because if you just took out those shots, that moment wouldn't land because it wouldn't be clear to us what was happening. And so, again, I haven't I haven't like, you know, settled on an answer yet, but uh, but it's something that I have been thinking about, like, what, is there could there have been a because uh, like, I don't really I don't think it's it's bad. I don't, I, I don't really object to, uh, to the way it was handled. I just, I don't, I don't think it's quite as effective as just other aspects of the movie. I think it's, so I think it's solid. Okay. Would, would you say just to, not to beleaguer the, the point, would you, maybe a solve for this would be to have a creature or have a, a an antagonist that wasn't quite as alien-like, maybe a more, I'm not gonna call it a human creature, but maybe more a, uh, a a more tactile creature that that didn't feel like it was from outer space because that's probably what worked for me. The fact that we were 
indirectly informed that these creatures were from outer space, those CG moments didn't really feel out of place because, oh, we're dipping into the alien biology just for a second here to kind of focus on that. Maybe if there was, if the antagonist was less alien-esque, maybe practical effects or practical shots would have been more informing. I'm not sure. But I, th- I think for me, that's why it worked so well is the fact that we were kind of given that that information like, hey, these are alien creatures. And so they give it, they give the, the filmmakers that, that freedom to be able to kind of get a little CG in there and get more alien-esque and a little bit less tactile. It could be. Yeah. Uh, this is, I mean, I, I'm going to be thinking about this uh, for a while longer. I, I think that, you know, the, the design is fine. And I think, and, uh, and I, I, I don't want them to look less alien than they do. And, uh, I'm really just wondering if there, there, there could have maybe even just uh, me saying a a more subtle way of of commune of still making it clear to the audience uh, the that their audio receptors are, are like vibrating a certain frequency and just like the, the the connection between the hearing aid and and them uh, because it's one of those things like you know when uh, I do think the aliens often. Are, they're most effective in scenes when they're maybe in the background of a scene where one of our protagonists is in close up in the foreground. I think that like they're usually scarier that way. Like, like, uh, yeah, w- yeah w- when they are a little bit removed and the perspective stays on, on our protagonists, then when, you know, we have a close up on them. And I think that's just, that's inevitable, you know, like no matter how good CGI gets, when there when there's a CG, a th- th- we we're always going to know it's CGI, and so like so what when we shift over to like an extreme close up of of the creature, for me it's always going to be a little bit less scary than when the creature's just in the background. Right. But it's again that's not that's not don't. A, yeah, but the, I don't that I in no way think that's a major fault. At that, that point, right. this point, you know. I feel like we've been talking long enough about it, so it's like I can go into like my my you know my very very minor issues because I, I I like the movie a lot, <laughs> and uh, but that's that's just one little thing of like you know this this is this part is this element is good but not as excellent as much of the rest of the movie. Yeah. So understandable. I don't think you're alone. Um, it, it definitely works for me. I I love it. I think that the blending of the way that the the CGI horror aspect of it, it comes into play with the tension and the suspense. I don't know. I loved the marriage of them all together. And I also really like the end because the sound does not kill the monster. And I thought that was a fantastic choice. It just disables the monster. So it's, it's very much the reverse effect happening. So the fact that the monsters can sense sound disables the humans and makes them susceptible to being killed but it's the reverse in in play here where the hearing aid disables the monster to the point where now you can shotgun them in the face yeah. and actually kill them yeah um, and i i mean i know i've talked to people who thought well it, it was so good and then it got campy for the last 10 seconds you know i loved the ending of this movie i thought it was awesome you mean the final really shotgun cool. blast? Yeah, I thought it was oh, yeah. freaking brilliant. And then just the click, click with the sound, the sound editing, because the sound editing in the picture is fantastic. And it has to be. It had to be perfect for uh, this movie to succeed. I'm actually surprised we haven't talked more about 
the sound editing. Oh, it's such a vital part of the movie. And at least for me, that's often a beef I have with horror movies, the sound design. Like, uh, I mean, like last year, I generally liked it as in the movie it. Uh, But my one of my biggest issues with that movie was the really overbearing musical score and sound design which would constantly we're just constantly telling you this is scary you should be scared now and they would have a a huge musical sting to accompany every single thing that happened i'd just be like stop it just like if this would be scarier and more effective if you just pulled back and uh, on that stuff and didn't didn't need to like you know have like like a a huge like like a like ominously either like tone or sting over everything that happened and uh and in this movie i was so relieved that the uh the sound design and the music mostly like you know that they held back and they let things play out and didn't have to announce constantly that we should be scared Hmm. so that uh that that to me was like a you know just a that was a relief and something that was i was so glad to hear and uh and yeah just just a great sound design work throughout yeah or in your case not here you know the lack of the lack of those elements but i think um you know for the record i'm glad it had all those things in it because i'm a scaredy cat when it comes to the scary movies so anytime you can tell me when something's coming the more the merrier but you're right the effect becomes a lot more diminished as a result of that. And that's really where your physical tension comes from. I mean, I, I remember gripping my seat going, okay, what's what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And the less is more approach is probably the most effective technique in the movie. Um, I'm, I don't know where I'm at in, in terms of the, the, the final shot. I can see the campy argument to that because the whole movie was centered around this drama. And at the end we get a like, all right, independence day, let's take back the land. You know, you can, you can make that argument for sure. At the same time, you can also justify it by saying this woman just delivered her own baby. Okay. So let's not give, let's give her more credit than it's due. I don't know where I land just yet. I mean, this is, this is where it teeters between four and a half and five stars for me is the, those last, 20 seconds because I left going, uh, okay, wait, I, I don't really know how to really resolve that. Uh, I loved it, but I don't know if I really did because it was just, it wasn't out of nowhere, but tonally it felt a little different than everything else. And I, I, I still haven't really resolved that. I think it's, it's all about that feeling of confidence, like the whole movie. No one has any confidence. It's nothing but fear and terror and suspense and just knowing that you can't do anything. You are helpless the entire film. Your existence for now almost two years has been helplessness and the inevitability that death is going to eventually – they're going to catch you at some point, right? They're wiping out the earth. And all of a sudden you have now in that moment – and for me, it's all about – I'm not going to project what's going to happen that they're going to go out and like save the world because that's not what the movie tells me. Right. The movie tells me is that in that moment, they took one down and discovered a method to do that, and they have to feel so much relief, I think. But if you're giving me two years of fear, how do you justify that with 10 seconds of confidence? And that's that's kind of what I was taking away from it was I don't know that I – But well, we don't know what happens after that though. I, I agree with you, but I'm saying that there was nothing in the face of either of these characters that said – 
I'm still scared. It said, no, we got this. I mean, that's, that's where I think my separation came from. I don't, I don't doubt their agency. I don't doubt the fact that Emily Blunt's character is strong. Uh, not, you know, her pregnancy delivery, notwithstanding, I don't doubt that the fact that they could do what could have happened after that or what they were doing in that moment. I don't doubt that her shotgun blast to the alien and knocking him out and killing him was, was realistic. I just think that it was a sharp turn from the rest of the movie because we were, we were told and informed and emotionally invested in one emotion and one type of fear. And now we got confidence. It just, I don't know that it worked for me. So you, you, I guess the difference, the thing I would compare it to is 10 Cloverfield Lane. But I think what you're saying is because she would, she builds that confidence over the course of the film. As yes. a character. Well, but no, I, I would say that there's dissonance. Yes. There's dissonance in most of this, most of the movie in the last 20 to 30 seconds for me, but it's from a different standpoint than 10 Cloverfield Lane. 10 Cloverfield Lane was telling me this is the type of movie it is. And now it's turning into something else. I, I didn't, I didn't feel that with this. I felt like the emotional transition from I've been scared. I'm emotionally vulnerable to let's take them down. I mean, it, it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't feel like consistent with me. Wait, can you guys remind me what is the last shot of the movie? It's uh, that it's the, it's the pump of the shotgun with like a little bit of a grin on Emily Blunt's face. Okay. That's yeah, it. And we I, cut to black. I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten about the, and, the very last shot. And then kind of, I think a rock and roll song kind of, Oh, it does. Oh, it definitely See, goes rock and roll. And, and, it's and it's that, very similar and, and, to the Tomb Raider, end of Tomb Raider. Have you seen Tomb okay. Raider, Patrick? I have not. Oh, never mind. It's not similar at all to that movie. So, spoilers, <laughs> there's a rock song in the end credits. Now it's ruined for me. <laughs> so even that pretty much informed a different emotional state at that point. So I think that it was just it was too different for me to really say, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I know what you're saying, and I'm, I, I haven't quite decided where I come down on it. I think for me, I, I mostly allow them that slight tonal shift because it's, it's like these people have been through so much, and now they finally have a bit of a win, and so like, like l- let them have this like th- this the only feeling of of victory they've had like maybe ever. And by proxy, the audience. Yeah, exactly. We held our breath for an hour and a half of your movie. We right. sat there intense, like on the edge of our seat, not willing to chew our popcorn because we didn't want to ruin the silence. And then that's our exhale moment as an audience, I think, as well as the characters. Yeah, it's like like we, we've earned a moment of, of feeling confident. So I, I, I'm mostly like pretty cool with it. And Jim wanted to make his wife look strong. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he has to go home and, you know, be married to Emily Blunt. So, I mean, he's got to come out with her looking like a rock star. On the right. Thing, right. All right. Um, we beat that horse to death. So, or that alien monster or whatever. Um, uh, let's move into our connecting point, though. So, Patrick, we'll let you go first. Well, actually, Patch, why don't you go first? Because I know okay. what yours is. Before, real quick, just some trivia. We've mentioned the Cloverfield franchise in in and of itself, and I just wanted to say this. I was reading some of the IMDb trivia. These guys were actually approached when they were beginning the initial stages of the film to actually 
bring this movie into the Cloverfield franchise. Really? Uh, the the folks at, at Paramount thought it would be kind of a neat idea. Obviously, they ended up turning it down uh, because the the guys wanted to make something that felt very original. And they didn't discredit the Cloverfield movies at all. But they just said, we wanted to have our own space to create something pretty original. And so it's interesting that we're having a conversation and comparing these to like the Cloverfield creature and the, the kind of tones here. Because right. those definitely exist in this movie. But I, for one, am glad that it's not part of the universe because it would have put more emphasis on the creatures. And it would have taken away from what I think we all love about the movie. I totally agree. And now that you bring that up, I'm also – I haven't uh, read much or like watched much about the – the the making of it but i am fascinated by the fact that this is a platinum dunes movie Ooh, what's that so platinum dunes is uh is the production company owned by michael bay oh yeah that, that right. have has pretty much exclusively for the past 20 years made remakes of classic horror movies so like like texas chainsaw massacre friday the 13th amityville horror like all basically the 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 very flashy often like marcus nispel directed uh like not very good horror remakes that michael bay produces those are that's like what people at least that's that's all i associate platinum dunes with so i saw the platinum dunes logo and i knew uh, and I, I, I knew that Michael A. was a, an executive producer on it, but I was just so surprised to see this coming from Platinum Dunes because that this is not the kind of thing they usually make or the quality of thing that they usually make. Yeah. And so I'm just really curious because, well, because, you know, Krasinski worked with Bay on 13 Hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, is that where this began? Where, uh, you know, he was that like where this like partnership was formed? Because Maybe. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. It's definitely the best thing that Michael Bay's name's been on in a decade or more. Easy. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a weird Michael Bay defender. I think oh, he's a, this, oh, this, that's going to be a whole other podcast then. Uh, I, I think he's literally a, the opposite of Patrick. I think he's a, a, a genuinely fascinating filmmaker. Oh, boy. And, uh, and I think Pain and Gain is a, a real good movie. I actually really love that movie too. Yeah. <laughs> Pain and gain, good stuff. Patrick, Patrick's not a fan. Um, <laughs> a lot of people aren't. This, like, this Patrick is not a fan. My no, opinion Patrick's is controversial here. <laughs> so I'm the one who has to defend this. And uh, <laughs> I'm not – I am I am surprised to hear people ag- ever agree with me on this. I also think this is the best Cloverfield movie for me. It, it's, it's the best one. <laughs> the so if they had tagged that name on it, I would have said this is the best Cloverfield movie. I still haven't actually gotten around to watching the Cloverfield Paradox. Everyone has just been so down on it. That I'm just does like, not exist. I'm just like, ah, you, you know, like there, there's, there's a lot of movies that I know will be better that, that, that I could spend my two hours watching. That's a so. good, good approach. All right. Well, anyway, back sorry. for real connecting points, um, <laughs> Patch, why don't you take us away? Well, the, the scene that really stood out to me, and there were several, but the scene that I really connected with was the conversation. And I put that in air quotes because there was no, actual like physical dialogue between Regan after she tries to go into uh into Lee's workshop we mentioned that earlier uh the the basement and I watch this and I watch the eyes of these two characters I watch how emotionally upset she gets when he's trying to explain he's actually trying to yell at her with sign language it's very aggressive their conversation is very aggressive back and forth and I see so much about their history 
over this last what year and a half, I forget how many days it is after the the death of his his youngest son, how much he has poured into getting her hearing aid to work to get her closer to being I, I'm gonna say normal, which is not a great word because that's now putting someone who doesn't have hearing as abnormal and that's not the case. But I think that in a world that they live in, he's trying to give her an advantage. He's trying to allow her the ability to be stronger. And what she's doing is her reaction feels like he's almost taunting her in an indirect kind of a weird way of like, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep putting all this effort into something that is not going to happen? You're killing me. I mean, you are trying to any kind of, you're trying to build my hopes up knowing that they're going to get dashed. And it was so frustrating, emotionally, not frustrating, but it was so just uh, heart-wrenching to see her a couple of scenes later put that thing in her ear and it doesn't work. <laughs> and so it's yet another futile attempt to try to get her to feel something that she's not. And I, but I love their, their nonverbal communication in that scene because it gives us more information that we didn't have before. It gives us more backstory behind her feeling guilty about the loss of of that child. And it gives us backstory about how he has been trying so hard to help her. Um, I think the fact that he doesn't want her to see his basement is partially informed by that. But it, it carries a lot of weight, especially leading into the, uh, the, the, the back half of the movie when we see a lot more uh, sacrifice and a lot more stuff going on. So that was my connecting point. Well, that's awesome. I love that. Um, that leads directly into mine. So I'll just go ahead and go next, I guess. And Because mine is the resolution, <laughs> I guess if we're going to call it that, of that relationship with his daughter. And, you know, I'm sure it's not a shocker for for many people jeff jeff Je- i don't know where i got jeff that's like between jim and lee jet lee Je- krasinski's character <laughs> so it's lee's death scene for me that really is the most powerful and i'm sure that many people are going to feel that way i was completely devastated by his sacrifice i, I didn't see it coming and I guess the movie just kept me so heightened that I didn't expect that, even though in a horror movie, I probably should have expected that. But he had never really had an opportunity to reconcile with Regan, those frustrated feelings that she had. And it was just so painful. I, Him signing, I love you, I have always loved you, haunted me for uh, several days. I mean, just verbalizing those words and thinking about this as a father with a teenage daughter. I mean, his kids are very, very close in age to my own. Um, perfectly. My, have a, you know, a teenage daughter and a low teen son. And it was just gut wrenching for me to watch him do this to save them, knowing that this is the last thing he's going to be able to do. And, the acting in this scene is is so perfect uh, all the way around, both him in that terrifying moment, making that choice and then getting ready and, and you know, willing himself to scream and open his mouth and the pain on their faces, the kids knowing that this is about to happen. It's brilliant. 
um, and wonderfully done because it's so impactful. But it, it brought me to tears. It hurt me uh, big time because this is a dad dying to save his kids. And that's not something you see in horror movie tropes. That's not, it's not how this goes. That's not the kind of relationships we get to experience. And so I loved it. I thought it was the ultimate parenting move um, from a movie that showed us that the whole way through that this is what he was going to do was try to protect his family. And ultimately if that means giving his life, then he was going to do so. So it really impacted me a lot. And I also thought from a directing standpoint, Krasinski's choice not to linger on this moment made it even more effective because it happens and we, we feel it. And there's a little bit of a score that happens when we transition back to the house, but it, it's not very long. And I feel like in another movie or most other movies, this scene would have stayed in that feeling and overdone it and really just tried to like make us live there for a long kind of mournful time. But I, I, I feel like it was, you know, 10 to 15 seconds if that, and then it was over. And so I felt it, it hurt. And then man, I was right back in that basement worrying about that monster that was getting ready to attack his wife. Well, right. And I love that a lot. And that's what the characters are meant to feel as well. They don't have time to grieve. They're surviving. They're trying to get through this. And so I think it was a fantastic choice not to linger either because it made it less like a movie and more like real life. Yeah, I think we, like, yeah. we would have been complaining if they had dragged it out because we'd just be shouting, no, you're not safe yet. Go, go, go. And yeah, and, and the last thing you want is people shouting at the screen at, at an emotional moment. So I thought I was almost going to shout. No, I was under my breath. I was saying, no, 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 no. As it was happening, as he was leading up to where it was very clear what he was going to have to do. Oh, man, I, it, it hurt. I mean, as a dad thinking about what I would do to save my own children's life, that put me in those shoes. And I know that anybody else that had, can relate to that most likely felt very similar. So I thought it was just brilliantly done. So what about you, Patrick? What would you say was your kind of most connected moment? Ah, oh, geez, Aaron. I mean, it's, it's hard to top that because I mean, that's like, well, it doesn't have to be different. I know, I know, but it's, uh, I, I mean, I don't have anything quite that strong. Uh, you know, but I, uh, I mean, of, of course, not being a parent myself, uh, I, I didn't have that connection. I mean, as much as I, I appreciated and was moved by moments such as that. But for me, actually, I think the, the thing that struck me the most was a bit earlier in that section of the movie, uh, when the, the brother and sister finally find each other. And, uh, because so, you know, as people often do in movies such as this, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just like, I'll, I'll th- think occasionally, I'll be like, what, what would I be doing, like, uh, in this situation? Like, how, how would I be, like, like, what, what would, what, what, how would I react? What would I be doing? Uh, uh, and what would my, my priorities be? And, um, and I, I have a sister that I'm, I'm really close with. We're pretty much like best friends. And I, that, just like that feeling of finding your sibling, like in this situation where everything is terrifying and going wrong, uh, like I that 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 hit me just in terms of like I I I I haven't been in a situation like this, but I imagine that that I would be feeling exactly the same way, and that would be like just yeah, like like were I there, like you know, finding my sister, make, knowing that she was okay, would be 
like s- such a relief and uh and then and everything that goes on afterwards like with with the two i i loved having the, the siblings just together uh interacting debating whether you know like we you know whether dad is going to come or not and uh if they should stay and uh that it struck me as really real. I, I that and and it, it resonated with me. Just just the, the siblings finding each other in in the midst of this nightmare. And that's awesome. I th- I think so. That's my connection point. That's great. That's that's perfect. Um, because I mean that's why we do it honestly, and it, it's it's a fun exercise. And we encourage our listeners to do this when they're watching a movie. Because now Patrick and I do it, even for movies we're not going to podcast about. It's we're always like watching with an intentional thought in mind of huh, what is the moment that I'm really connecting with this movie? And it, and it does. It tells you something about yourself. Like you said, you can resonate with the brother-sister relationship. I'm an only child. So that one, I, I, I respect it, like you said, for, for the father-daughter thing. I understand it, but I don't have that personal connection to it. Whereas me as a parent of a teenage daughter, I can totally connect with that one. And, and that's just that's the beauty of, of what we do with our connecting point, I think. Uh, honestly, I, I think that's kind of the beauty of of cinema or art. We're all bringing something totally different to it, Absolutely. and uh, and and what we get out of it very much comes from what we bring to it. Well, and John Krasinski would not have made this movie had he not had a relationship with his wife and kids. I don't think. I'm just I'm I'm, I'm projecting, but I I doubt that a movie would have this kind of visceral reaction that it does if its director and its creative team didn't have those relationships with the people in their lives. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this, this is clearly a, 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 a deeply personal movie. I mean, it, like, you know, beyond just the husband and wife on screen together, but exactly. you, you know, you, you can tell like they care and he cares. Yeah, totally. And, and for the record, my wife and I watched cocktail last night and I could not find a connecting point. What? Just saying. Oh, just saying that we try to find a connecting point in all the movies, and I could not find one in cocktail. Couldn't even like find a drink recipe that you liked. That might have been Something. a connecting point. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you mean you, you haven't that, ever been like a like a like a, a hot shot uh, the behind bartender? the bar? The behind the bar. I've never been a bartender poet, you know, and so I couldn't. I really couldn't connect with him. I yeah. Nor could I connect with it's. It's really bad dance moves. It's so good though. That it's whole so that whole stuff is so good. Okay. Um. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, Patrick, I'm so glad you were able to make it and join us for this because we had a blast and um, awesome getting to include your perspective on this movie and just in general. Um, your knowledge of film and film studies is is awesome to bring to the table. So as we sign off, why don't you tell people where they can find your videos, where they can find your other projects. Tell them about the awesome podcast that you just started that is all about Josh Hartnett. We've covered two Josh Hartnett movies by the way really um, what have you talked about the faculty and black hawk down one oh. we love one we watched again <laughs> uh we, our donors picked it what we, we had to we uh how, how do you come down on both of them because i've covered one for the podcast and we haven't gotten to the other yet <laughs> black hawk down is possibly my favorite war film of all time it is right up there with okay so it's pretty good we, we liked it a little bit. i absolutely adore <laughs> i love black hawk down um the faculty we we both enjoy but is definitely full of issues 
Uh, yeah, so the, the faculty is the one that I, I've recently rewatched. Oh, uh, also, okay, I should, uh, I should, I should back up. Uh, so listeners who are not familiar with me, um, I, I recently launched a podcast. Uh, we've got three episodes out. It's called We Heart Hartnet. It explores the filmography of the actor Josh Hartnett movie by movie, going chronologically through his career. I co-host it with Matt Torpy and Jake Torpy. Episodes drop every Tuesday morning. And uh and yeah, and so we yeah, so we've covered the faculty, which I for me held up better than I expected it to. And um I think it's a pretty fun movie that mostly succeeds at what it sets out to do and we haven't gotten to black hawk down actually i was just uh lining up a guest for it uh yesterday we just recorded our pearl harbor episode and uh bring it back to michael bay i had never seen it before yeah i have i skipped it based on all the reviews yeah it's uh fascinating and for me it's it's three hours long that was also and i'm not gonna go into this here but i i do have a whole theory about how Pearl Harbor is like the turning point in Michael Bay's career and, uh, and his perspective on his work. And, um, that is where everything changes. So maybe we'll all just tune into your Pearl Harbor episode then and, and hear that theory, hopefully. Oh, oh, I, I, I go deep on that one, but, uh, but yeah, so I, uh, so I've got the podcast, but, and the, and that's an offshoot of the main thing that I do, which is, uh, my YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. And there I've been doing this for like six years. The, the videos vary from original short films to video essays, analyzing and dissecting cinema. Everything comes back to filmmaking in some way. And, um, and there's a whole range of, 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 fun stuff on there videos drop usually every wednesday so uh so yeah subscribe uh check them out it's fun yeah it's good stuff and we're hoping to have you back later uh, maybe in a few months to talk about your film criticism video that you did because it really is fantastic and i think it's something that all of our listeners and all movie goers should go watch so we won't talk about it now but Please, everyone, go seek it out. What's it? What's the title of it, by the way? Uh, uh, thank you for the kind words. I really, that's really nice of you. I appreciate it. But the the video is called uh, "We Need to Talk About Film Criticism." Okay, and it's it's a lot less like dramatic than we need to talk about Kevin. I promise. All right, uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Patch, what about you? Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm usually on uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch S H O E L E S S P A T C H. You can find me at both of those platforms using that username. Be sure to at me if you want to talk about this movie or anything else that we've covered about movies in general. Um, I'm usually hanging around here and there, but uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Next week, we are going to be talking Warrior with one of our super patrons, Jason Kroll. So the guest list continues as we will be diving into that one. Yeah, I'm excited to finally get to talk about that one. We threw it on the wish list here to cover, and it was the one that Jason picked. Uh, when you say super patron, we'll just mention um, Jason had subscribed at our highest level. It's a level that doesn't even exist now, and uh, one of his rewards was to come on the show, and he was the only one to ever do such a thing, and he's been a listener since day one and a supporter since the moment that our Patreon went live a little over a year ago, and um, we've been able to develop a friendship with him and just... It's really neat. It's one of the coolest things about doing a podcast is meeting people and talking movies and then having that bleed into kind of real life conversations where you care about each other's, you know, everyday goings and and comings. And so we're excited to talk about that movie with Jason because it's one that he loves as well. 
You can find me online everywhere at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. That's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. I'm also tweeting out of the Feel and Film Twitter account. And then our amazing Facebook group that we mention all the time. Please come join. We love it. It's continuing to grow. People there talk film all the time. You've got a wide variety of blockbuster lovers, Disney lovers, and uh, cinephiles as well. So you'll find some talk about foreign stuff and documentaries and just... It's a great, great group of people, and we would love to have you come be a part of that. So you can search it on Facebook, the Feel and Film Discussion Group, or you can find a link to it in the show notes or on our website. And last but not least, if you're enjoying the content, we would love for you to share it with a friend or write us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, a review would be awesome. Uh, if you don't like the content, well, don't leave a review because we don't want that kind. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this. Check out Patrick's stuff for sure. And until next time, stay positive. <laughs>